Okay, we can start. Hi, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Nana, and I'm replacing Simon today for uh, Meet the McConics podcast. And I'm delighted to have with me here uh, Rod Van Meter. So I've been wanting to meet you, Rod, for for some time. So I'm glad we have this opportunity to to meet up. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So we're in uh, Berlin. Yes. So so we're both at the SPIE, like Quantum Technologies and Quantum Information Conference. Right, and I'm here talking about quantum networks, and Nana's talking about something else. Yes, <laughs> I, I'm talking about uh, well, actually an application of what you mentioned in your talk. But we'll, let's get to that later. Um, so before we begin, so so Rod is an associate professor in Keio University, and he's also the vice center chair of the Keio University Quantum Computing Center. And more recently, I heard that you're involved with the IBM Q or hub in Asia, and I think it's the first IBM Q hub. In, in Asia, and I guess you'll tell us uh, about that too. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. So the KO uh, Quantum Computing Center, we actually mm -hmm. created it to essentially house our relationship with uh, IBM so that we have access to, to IBM's best quantum computers that they have in uh, New York, or at least the best ones that they're sharing with other people. All right, so you actually created the center in order to collaborate with IBM. Right. Ah, okay, cool. Well, I'm sure that's a fascinating story, so we'll, we'll get to that. So, so before uh, we go on, Rod, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about your background, because your background is actually very interesting. I mean, I mean, sure. most people, I mean, me included, we sort of came from a physics background, and we heard about you know, quantum information. Most people? Who's most people? What do you mean <laughs> well, most people? Most people in quantum information, <laughs> um, and also quantum computing. Uh, but you're one of the first guys who actually came from, you know, the classical computing um, the classical computing world. I mean, when, even when I started, I mean, I have a lot of friends in classical computing. And at that time, you know, it was only a couple of years ago, uh, I mean, they weren't that interested in quantum computing, right? That's I mean, the, the ideas are fascinating, but, you know, they listen to me because I'm their friend. <laughs> but, but, but now they're listening to me because they're genuinely interested. I mean, now it's very popular. But you sort of got in, I, mean, I think, around 2009 that you mentioned? No, no, no. I started in quantum computing in 2003. Oh, three. Sorry, I misheard. 2003. So even year my, The year my younger daughter was born. Actually, the same month she was born. So I can oh, always, really? Okay. I can so always so tell you exactly how long I've been, I've been in the, the, the field. Wow, so, so that, that's even earlier. So, um, I mean, I, I mean, I can imagine at that time, you know, in the classical community, it's, you know, probably people even haven't even heard of, uh, of quantum computing because Shor's algorithm only came in 94. So Well, we, 94 to 2003, that's yeah. already nine years, right? Well, so the, yeah, but, but I would say in, like, the physics community, actually nine years is not, <laughs> not a long <laughs> period of time. I mean, considering that I actually came from high energy physics. Oh. So, so, yeah, that, that was my original Yeah, and high-energy so, physics, nine years isn't even long enough to write the plan, let alone to actually <laughs> exactly. build something. Exactly. Yeah, so, so I, did, I did my undergrad at Caltech, and I was there mm -hmm. 82 to 86. And mm -hmm. I took a class from Richard Feynman that was actually titled... Amazing. Uh, okay, I did not know that. Mm -hmm. He taught a class that was titled Potentialities and Limitations of Computing Machines. So well, it was which essentially... Year was this? So the story is, he started it actually with um, John Hopfield and Carver mm -hmm. Mead. And oh. so they were originally doing one shared course that covered the future of VLSI and computing. That was Carver's okay. thing. And well, what's VSI computing? VLSI, I'm sorry. Uh, VLSI, what? Very large-scale integration, oh, the process of yes. designing the uh, computer okay. chips. So Carver Mead is yeah. one of the people who founded the field of VLSI in the oh, 1970s. He's one of the authors of, of the most prominent textbook mm -hmm. in VLSI from, from that period. Um, 
but he had by the time that I was at Caltech Harvard had shifted to working on analog VLSI instead of digital VLSI so he was interested in that and Hopfield was was mm-hmm. the neural networks guy yes, and then right. Feynman was the physicist but you know he was interested in computing all the way from the very beginning of, of his career and yes. the, uh, going back to his days on the Manhattan Project well, that's right mm-hmm. um, so they taught a course together before I took it. By the time I took it, um, Feynman was running a course by himself that was called um, Potentialities and Limitations of Computing Machines. And so cool. yeah. it covered everything from the low-level physics of transistors through some of the early work on reversible computers. Sorry, that's just a truck going by. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting outside by the by the uh, the local uh, creek here named uh, Zonenbrook, watching the traffic go by. It's really nice sitting here in the beer garden. Um, so, so, Rod, I, I remember, um, like, because Feynman had actually uh, a set of lectures called, like, Theory of Computing. Is that, mm-hmm. is, I mean, were those the lectures that you sat in on? Yeah, so the, okay. that book called uh, Feynman Lectures on Computation. Yeah, if, that's right. If you look in the preface... Uh, Tony Hay, who was the editor who put it together, actually mm-hmm. thanked me in, in the preface oh, really? because, okay. because uh, I sent him a copy of my uh, lecture notes when he announced he was putting the book together. But Fantastic. That was really yeah. nice of him to put it in because my, <laughs> my lecture notes were terrible. I'm sure they were absolutely no help at all. Um, I, I love those lectures. Yeah. yeah. So it covered everything from the, the physics of semiconductors yes. through expert systems mm-hmm. and a little bit about... It had neural computing and, and stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. So that was where I first really was exposed to Turing machines and, and this, that, and the other thing. Um, it was great. The year that I took it was the year of the Challenger disaster, oh. and even from the fall, uh-huh. Feynman was already co-teaching it with a guy named uh, Sandy Fry, who came from okay. IBM, mm-hmm. and um, they were sharing the lecturing duties. But of course, once Feynman had to spend a bunch of time in Washington and. Florida working on the Challenger disaster. The, uh, he wasn't around a whole lot, but w- yeah. I still learned a huge amount, and that was my first um, real introduction to the core ideas that computing doesn't necessarily mean TTL logic or, or transistors, VLSI chips that you can compute using practically anything, and that there are many different ways to compute. So I was really particularly fascinated by the uh, the idea of reversible computing, yes. which Feynman who had worked with Bennett and uh, Toffoli and Fredkin on. on uh, I mean, I mean, I guess, that. I mean that, that's really like one of the big differences between classical computing and and quantum computing. I mean, with quantum computing, you you you, you know, gates, and that's necessarily reversible, but not so for for classical computing gates. Right. So I guess right around that same time frame, Feynman was actually making his early contributions to the field we now call quantum computing. Right? Mm-hmm. Lots of people like to cite him as the father of quantum computing because of a, a paper he wrote suggesting that, that it might be feasible. Um, that was more for simulation. Right. Yeah. But the uh, in that class, I don't rem- remember him actually talking about quantum computing. So it was a few years later that I actually learned about quantum computing. But I can remember, it's a guy named uh, Aldous Spain, who was a professor at the University of Southern California mm-hmm. um, while I was at USC's Information Sciences Institute. And um, after Shor's algorithm was announced, Al started a small group and he started working on, on quantum computing. And I remember he gave a lecture on it. And um, I learned two things from that lecture when I heard him give a, give a talk at uh, ISI. 
number one, quantum computing is really interesting and exciting. Mm -hmm. Number two, if Al Despain knows how it works, he doesn't know how to explain it. Oh, right. <laughs> now, that sounds kind of harsh. I don't mean to be mean uh, on Al, because I have since discovered yes. how hard it is to explain quantum computing to people. And so yes. my sympathy level for, for that position has gone way, way up in, in, the, uh, in the intervening 25 years almost, I guess. But well, I guess we have a lot more intuition now on you know, like explaining quantum computing. But I guess at the time, I mean, there were basically only two algorithms. You have you know, the deutsch Dozer algorithm. And then in the shore, I mean, there wasn't. I mean, I guess Grover's algorithm came like maybe two years later, but yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> but but now we have more tools uh, to think about it. Yeah. yeah. So part of what I am really telling people these days is um, emphasizing the importance of interference patterns. So, you know, we we're doing this uh, MOOC, this online course, a massive open online course. Oh, maybe uh, you can actually say a few words about that. Sure. Yeah. So we're doing a uh, a course that's called Understanding Quantum Computers, and it's a, a MOOC, an online course offered through a company called Fu FutureLearn. Okay. So if you go to FutureLearn and search for quantum, you'll find it. It's the only quantum course that's offered on FutureLearn at the moment. So if you and give us a link, Rod, then maybe we can put it like in, in the link in the podcast. If sure, I can do that. And uh, this will be the third run of it that's coming, opening on October 1st. We mm -hmm. did, did the first run for it uh, last fall. And the idea is to explain the core ideas at a little deeper level than you get from a popular science book, but with almost no mathematics. So if you know how to add a couple of vectors then and a little bit about probability, you should know enough to get through it. And the idea is that when you finish this course, you'll then be ready to do something like pick up uh, Mike and Ike. That's uh, Nielsen ah, and Chuang, okay. which is considered sort of the standard textbook. Yes. Which is, you know, it's it's heavy going for people from from computer science to pick up Mike and Ike and, and yes. start digging through it. So, with the MOOC, we're trying to prepare people for uh, for, for that, and also just people who are interested on sort of a casual level as well. So okay. So it's are, a wide audience. Yeah. There are articles and there are uh, a bunch of videos. Most of the videos are short. And their, the production values on those are high. It's not just taking a camera and setting it in a lecture hall and watching somebody do PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. um, and there are quizzes and there are discussion boards, which my team and I participate in. Mm -hmm. And there are um, JavaScript applications mm -hmm. that uh, allow you to see how interference works in one and two dimensions and allow you allows you to play around with some of the mathematics that underlie uh, Shor's algorithm and things like that. So we put a lot of effort into it, and, and we're pretty proud of the results. And we've had thousands and thousands of people Okay, fantastic. Because, so I mean, normally when we all hear, you know, what's the power of quantum computing? And I guess, you know, a lot of time we sort of hear the wrong thing. Right. And, and this wrong thing is, you know, more about parallelization. Uh, you know, it's because you have superposition, then it's like a quantum computing does all these computations at once, which of course is not really where we get the real power of quantum computing, because you can do that with classical parallelization. Um, so and so you could do it you know, by wavelength division multiplexing, or and you're exactly. using optical computing or something, right? Exactly. You could put a bunch of signals into things. But, but there's... Interference is a central... Exactly. Aspect. Yes. You know, we talk about, even in the course, we talk about sort of the seven key ideas that, that you have to know. You have to be able to understand superposition and interference and entanglement and measurement and decoherence and no cloning and mm -hmm. um, whatnot. And I decided that trying to teach all of those things, it's like trying to, to start in computing with 
Turing machines and, and computational complexity theory and, and whatnot. You need those eventually, but when you're first doing your very first computations and you're first getting involved in something, I'm not sure it's really the right place to start. So I'm starting to really feel like what we as a community need to do mm -hmm. is emphasize the construction of patterns in interference in, the, in introducing the key ideas of quantum computing to people and using that in the process of designing algorithms. I, I think that's fantastic because, I mean, this is really what I liked about the Feynman lectures as well. I mean, he sort of began from the hardware level because normally when you're you know, going to classical computing, they you know think about it from a very logical kind of point of view, right, with all these complexity theory, um, that aspect. But really, a computer is physical. Uh, you know, it based physical law. Yeah. So, so, so you, know, uh, you know, a lot of the inspiration is, you know, coming from, you know, the physics of what's happening. And so, so I think it's very good that you sort of build that from the ground level up and then seeing how, you know, you can develop algorithms from, from that basis. So I'm looking forward to actually seeing <laughs> some of these lectures. I actually saw the introduction, like, I think it was a five-minute YouTube. Yeah, there's um, a, you know, a promo yes. trailer for it that's, on, that's, on, that's online for you. Uh, oh, fantastic. So, so going back to um, what we were talking about earlier, so you started quantum computing in about 2003. Yeah, I heard about it the first time in 94, 95, mm -hmm. like I said, from, from Aldous Spain. Mm -hmm. And then in 2003, I decided I was going to change my career and I was going to do something interesting and different, something that was potentially high risk but potentially high payoff. So and I looked at DNA computing and this, that, and the other thing, and I settled on quantum computing, and I'm still happy with that. Okay, so like, did something happen in classical computing in 2003 that, you know? No. Or, like, or is it more of a personal? Piece of sort of uh, <laughs> career advice. I tell students that they should reinvent themselves every five years. If you're in computing, five years is kind of a long time. Right? Like you were saying, right. if you're talking about building particle colliders, five <laughs> yes. years is not a long time. But if you're in computing, five years is kind of a long Actually, time. Yes. Yeah, I hear that. And I yeah. think you should take, at regular intervals, it doesn't have to be exactly five years, but you should take the time to sort of sit down and think where your career is going. And prior to that, I was in classical computer systems, operating systems and architecture and networking. Mm -hmm. um, and I liked working on those things, particularly network storage systems, which was my primary focus. Mm -hmm. But in 1998, I said, all right, I'm going to give these classical distributed storage systems another five years, mm -hmm. and then we'll see after that. I'm, I'm going to reconsider, and I may change. Right? Right, so okay. I decided that in 1998, and, and I kept that promise to myself yeah, okay. in, in 2003. And the breakthroughs on. came in the, the classical side, so you thought it's time to... Exactly. Yeah. The, um, there's always more work to, to, to be done, but you know, yeah. I could sort of project forward from where I was in my career and see the set of things I would be doing over the next 10 or 15 years, and it was nice, and maybe I would have even gotten rich. You know, uh -huh. Some of my friends who stayed in, in uh, storage systems have gotten uh -huh. very rich, um, but I decided that I wanted to try something very different and you know, something that, that had more of the possibility of really changing the way we compute. Oh, that's fantastic. So now it's been 15 years. Yeah. So, so what, one of the... 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so you know how old my younger daughter is. <laughs> uh, so, so, so a big question is, like, especially for, for someone who started like much later uh, than you, uh, you know, what you saw, like what, what, what are the major changes that you saw? Because for me, for example, the major sort of uh, perception, like in the community, only came within the last year, last two, or three, you know, two years. You know, with the you know the IBM and you know uh, Google and, and Microsoft coming in, 
but before then, it's, it seemed to be more uh, like a hobby for for peers. <laughs> so, 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 so for you, like from, like from 2003, like what are the major changes that that you've seen? Well, I think you're right that the last two years or so have seen just tremendous, tremendous advances, and and a lot of it's due to to the work on the experimental side. You know, yes. The, the, uh, we've just sort of hit some sort of a threshold that has allowed people to move from from trying to build one qubit into systems with tens of qubits in them. Yes. <laughs> and you know, how well they work is still sort of a matter of, of discussion, but we know they're getting better. The, uh, but when I started in this in 2003, coming from a computer engineering background, yes. right? I'm not a theorist, I'm not a computer scientist, I'm a computer engineer, <laughs> it was hard to get the experimentalists to talk to me. I, I mean, you know, they would be polite when you when when you would go to yes. go to a conference, and they would be nice, and I would and they would explain what they were doing, and I would say, I want to design and build large scale systems, and they would say, go away and leave me alone. I can't get one qubit to work. And my attitude at the time was, well, there there are a lot of problems beyond just creating one qubit or even creating the couplers, but there's a lot of work in architecture that has to be done as yes. well, and if we don't do that. After the experimentalists had conquered the set of problems they were working on, mm -hmm. we would be left with all of this other work that still had to be done before we could build complete systems. Yes. Yeah. So if you're thinking about building and deploying a system, you have to look at all of the individual subsystems or all of the technology problems that have to be solved, yeah. and you have to kind of look at where the long pole is, and you need to be working on the long pole, but that doesn't mean you don't work on the other ones, right? Yes. So. Um, uh, and I guess you also, I mean, it, it alludes to to your talk this morning. So, so Rod, this morning at the conference, talked about the quantum internet. Um, and, you know, you mentioned this stack, right? So the quantum repeating stack. So, so you have a physical layer sort of on the bottom, and this is where physicists kind of work hard on, like, creating entanglement. But then before you get to the actual, like, application level, there, there's actually a lot of work, uh, you know, that, that goes, goes on in the middle. And unless there's a lot of cooperation on what happens... Uh, like within that stack, you know, it might be hard to to get the final product going. Exactly. So let's let's talk about the quantum internet for for a few minutes then. So. So so first, yeah, maybe you can define for us what, what is the quantum internet. So because <laughs> you, uh, so, so 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 when people hear about quantum internet, I guess you know they're imagining you know you have like quantum nodes that can, they can be small like quantum processors, and then you have quantum links between between these nodes. But then in your talk today, you actually mentioned something that's very important, which is that, I mean, this is what you might call a quantum repeater network, uh, but actually a quantum internet, you know, has to do what uh, everything a quantum repeater network has to do. But in addition to that, like in a real world, uh, real world internet, there are malicious, like, agents who, who might come in. So you, you don't trust everything, right? So... Exactly. The, so the, the internet as a whole, the classical internet, is a lot more than just laser diodes and detectors and fiber. Yes. There's a lot more to engineering and building it, and a lot more if you're using Wi-Fi than, than just the radio signaling. Mm -hmm. You have to have that. If you don't have some way to, to transmit bits, you're sort of stuck right, right at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But going from that link level to a complete network architecture and then to something that works as, a, as an internetwork is a lot of work. Um, so the internet, the classical internet itself, is not one thing. Lots of people think that it's one thing. There are even 
you know, UN officials who think that, that all email <laughs> yeah. in the entire world flows through one computer somewhere <laughs> right. in the world, right? Which is not true. Um, but the internet is actually a collection of 70 or 80,000 networks that all have agreed to exchange data with each other. But beyond that, there is almost no agreement in, in, in what's going on. Um, so, for example, when, when you send, when you connect to Google via your uh, web browser, your information passes through your own internet service provider, your own ISP, and then it probably passes through several other networks before it gets to Google's networks. Yes. Google's network. And each of those individual networks, they don't want to tell you what's going on inside their network, and they don't trust you, and you certainly don't want to trust them. You don't That's even right. know who they are, mm -hmm. right? So um, that internetworking is a harder problem even than networking. It adds an entire layer of complexity to these things. But even within individual networks, you have to worry about problems like how you're going to select a route or a path through the yes. network from one place to another. You have to worry about how you're going to deal with competition for resources. How are you going to do some form of multiplexing over the uh, over the network? Are you going to take turns in in what we we would call time division multiplexing? Or are you going to divide the resources in half? Are you going to, right. to just make people wait if until the first connection completes before they can start their connection. Yes. How are you going to deal with those sorts of problems? And one of the most recent things we've been working on is actually what happens in a quantum network when uh, one node has been compromised. So, um, what for do you example, mean by compromised? In this case, our definition of compromised was that someone malicious has taken over a quantum repeater and they can control all of the quantum resources of, of that node. So they can decide what messages are, uh, are going to be sent to different people, what classical messages are going to be sent, and what happens to the qubits and the entangled states that are, that are actually created inside the, the, uh, the network or inside that particular node. So, so as an example, if, if initially I wanted to send something to, to, to you, Rod, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's quantum repeater in the middle decided actually to uh, route my, my message to, say, Mark. Right, Is exactly. That, okay. Let's pick on Simon since he's not here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Simon's the bad guy in the network, right? <laughs> so, so the uh, maybe where our um, connection passes through Mark and then Simon and then somebody somebody else, yes. Alice, and then finally to Nana, right? Mm -hmm. So it's Rod, Mark, Simon, Alice, and Nana. So normally in a simple quantum repeater network, mm -hmm. we're going to pick that path that, that, that follows that set of nodes, and then we're going to do what's called um, entanglement swapping and purification to actually build the end-to-end -end connections. So um, we start with individual entangled states across, you know, first between Rod and Mark, and then yes. between uh, Mark and Simon, yes. and between Simon and Alice, and between Alice and Nana, and then we use what's called but entanglement, entanglement swapping, swapping mm -hmm. to to combine those. Yes. Um, well, in the process the of doing this, we also use uh, purification, which is kind of an error detection mechanism, mm -hmm. not really error correction, but more of an error detection mechanism. Um, if Simon's the bad guy, and he's in the middle there, 
he can, of course, disrupt his communication between you and me. Yes. Um, so he could just sort of refuse to do things. That's similar to the to the to the regular classical internet that you know, one router that's on the path can sort of disrupt yes. communications that's going on. But one of the things that we discovered is that in a quantum network, Simon can also frame other repeaters in the network. So we said what do you mean by Rod, framing? Mark, Simon, Alice, Nana. Mm-hmm. Simon could arrange the classical, the set of operations, including the classical messages, so that you and I are convinced that Mark is the bad guy, not Simon. Oh, or, okay. So if we do that for a while, we decide Mark is the bad guy, then we're going to cut him out and we're going to stop using him. Now, if, if that's the only way to get there, then it means we're cut off. But if there's another way around, we'll, then we'll sort of work around Mark. We'll go around him to get somewhere else. Now we've okay. damaged Mark. Uh, Simon has damaged Mark's ability to participate in the network, even oh. though Mark hasn't done anything bad. Right? And if he does that to a set of people, he does it to Mark, and he does it to Alice, and he does it to Charlie, and he does it to somebody else. He can actually sp- cut the network in half. He can. Oh, so, so, so it's not just like a Trojan horse thing, where where Simon is masking the fact that he's doing something malicious, but he's actually. It gives him oh. the ability to to negatively affect the operation of the entire network in a way that there's no equivalent classical analog to Oh yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. So, so you can't do this classically? There's not a direct equivalent to it, no. Okay, oh, that's fascinating. Um, but we found workarounds for this, and mm-hmm. and the workarounds are actually, in some ways, kind of like running QKD, um, eavesdropper detection, and part of what you have to do in QKD eavesdropper detection is you pick some subset of the bits that you're trying to, to, to share and use those as a kind of test tool instead of statistics to see whether or not there's a, a an eavesdropper in the chain somewhere. Mm-hmm. If we do the same thing for the entangled pairs that we're building right. and we cryptographically securely select a subset of those mm-hmm. to test, then we can determine whether or not Simon's uh, the one who's actually creating a problem on this. Okay. And um, what kind of security guarantees do you have on, on that kind of result? Um, we haven't looked very closely at trying to, to determine exactly what the, the guarantees for that would be in that sense. Uh, it's a good question. In this sense, it's going to be very similar, like I said, to, to the statistics of, of QKD. But the uh, the point is not the security of that particular connection itself, but but the security of the operation of the network. Right. So in that sense, hmm, good question. But but it's really interesting. I mean, do you have um, other examples where you know you can actually do you know like real life meaningful tasks? Uh, whether you know it's a computational task or it's you know uh, message sending, uh, that you know where you don't have a classical analog that you really need a quantum network for. Because I think what we were chatting about, there's no sort of killer app mm-hmm. for a, you know a quantum network right now. But what you described, I mean, that's sort of one example where you don't have a classical analog. Do you ha- do you have other examples to share? Well, remember that's on yeah. the operation side, but yeah. we do have to talk about the applications for, for a quantum internet. Yes. And I divide those roughly into three categories yes. with, with, that have some overlap between them. There's distributed cryptographic functions, um, sensor networks, and distributed quantum computation. 
and quantum key distribution, or QKD, that sits right at the border of the distributed cryptographic functions and, and the sensor networks, because mm -hmm. in a lot of ways what it's really doing is it's sensing the presence or absence of a, an eavesdropper in your channel yes. somewhere. Um, so other distributed cryptographic functions include possibly uh, Byzantine Agreement, which yes. is an algorithm that was developed by uh, Benor and Hasidim. Um, there are a couple of variants on that. That's the one that I think is the best. Yeah, but, uh, um, there's also secure, you know, secure leader election, um, secret sharing. Mm -hmm. Those fall into that ca category. Sensor networks includes things like um, clock synchronization. Yes. And mm -hmm. um, potentially you could consider clock synchronization to be kind of One, sensing, really. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's in the sensor, yeah. the sensing field. But you could consider that a um, an, a special case of um, creating a reference frame. So right. the uh, right. you can use entanglement to create a reference frame. Certainly the temporal one is likely to work out, I think, but it's also theoretically possible to use entanglement as a spatial reference frame as well. Mm -hmm. And there are some funny things that sort of happen between the physical representation and your logical representation of data, and I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work out, but it's an interesting one. And in that same area, again, sort of behaving as a temporal reference or phase reference, mm -hmm. um, Daniel Gottesman and his collaborators figured out how to use distributed entanglement between two telescopes to improve the fidelity, the precision of interferometry Rometry. that's mm -hmm. done using multiple telescopes. Right. Yeah, I remember which, that. Like what they call like multi-array. Like uh, I don't remember if they had like a particular that. name for it, but the but it's a potentially very interesting use for things. Um, you know, after their original paper came out, there there was actually some follow-on work that suggested that it's not going to work very well with thermal light; that it needs to be some sort of coherent light source that you're actually performing the interferometry on. But I think there's still, number one, hope for that, and number two, okay. non-astronomical applications, you know, terrestrial applications, where you could be doing something similar, where you're actually generating the light, and therefore you could be doing, you could create, you could be creating a coherent light source, yes. some uh, sort anyway. And, and I guess for, for these type of applications, I mean, what we hear a lot about, like in QKD and these type of applications, I mean, we really are just talking about creation of bell pairs, <laughs> right? So, 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 you know, if, if we if we want to share like a uh, secret code between you and me, Rod, then you know, we just need bell pairs between between us. But what's what's nice about maybe sensing applications is that then you might be utilizing uh, a multipartite entanglement. Uh, quantum network, because when we talk about quantum network, I mean, what we're really thinking is it's not just bell pairs between individual nodes. Maybe we, you know, we care about you know genuine multipartite entanglement. Yeah, so that's actually like a really interesting question. Some people have been writing papers recently, off the top of my head, I can't remember who, about using quantum repeater networks for creating new GHZ states and W states and uh, larger graph states are a common one. Yes. Right, the uh, for across the entire network. Um, some of those, they're trying to actually figure out direct physical mechanisms for creating these distributed states mm -hmm. among multiple parties who are sharing a single optical channel or something. Yes. Um, in other cases, they want the, want the network to actually create it directly. Um, that's another layer of complexity we have not yet really addressed in our work. Our work is really oriented toward building bell pairs across the network. Which, of course, is fundamentally 
adequate. You can do everything yes. you want to do with, with belt right. pairs. Because in the simplest thing, if you want a complex multi-party state, you create it at one specific node somewhere in the network, mm -hmm. and then you take all of your component qubits and you teleport them out using a long-distance yes. belt pair to all of the members you want to have the large distributed state. So the uh, creating belt pairs is both sufficient and necessary, although it isn't all necessarily the, the most optimal for, for every application. But what's the current um, experimental... Uh, limit on like uh, bell pair creation because mm -hmm. you're, you're mentioning you know for if you wanted to apply it for something like uh, you know Shor's algorithm you need 10 to the power of you know 10 uh, bell pairs per second but but what's the what's the current uh, state of the art experimentally on how many bell pairs we can create per second that's a good question and I should have a better answer for you than I do like order of magnitude tens <laughs> okay tens of bell pairs per okay. second okay okay um, like in Chris Monroe's laboratory at the University of Maryland, for example, they can create on the order of 10 bell pairs per second between um, two ion traps okay. sitting in the same laboratory or in nearby laboratories. Um, other people have been working on this for, for, uh, for uh, longer distances. Um, if you just want entangled photons, you can create them using something like symmetric parametric down conversion. Yes. Um, SPDC, and those you can sort of crank the rate of that up sort of arbitrarily. You can get large numbers of entangled photon pairs, yes. but then you have to figure out how to use those That's in the right. network as a whole. So creating entanglement between stationary memories versus creating just entangled pairs of photons, both are important, both are valuable, but so you just need to be careful about making the distinction about what you're talking okay. about. Could, could, could you explain to us the difference in a little bit more depth? So if you're just creating entangled pairs of photons, that's you're going to create them in one place. And then one photon goes to the left and the other photon goes to the right. And then you know, the left one's going toward Alice and the right one's going toward Bob. So Alice and Bob each receive a photon that's entangled with the other. But if you you want to take that and transfer that photon to a memory that's stationary, that's sitting still, that's still a very hard problem. Right. So if what you want to do is you want to take those individual qubits and those individual photons and do something like QKD with them, then Alice and Bob are just going to measure those photons right away and right. everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And you can do that at, at relatively high rates. Mm -hmm. um, bringing stationary memories into the equation makes things more complicated in right. that sense. All right, so let's see. So we talked about... So we talked the, about sensing. Right. We right. talked about the three categories of um, applications So here. we still haven't talked about the distributed computation exactly. side of your... Exactly. So we talked yeah. about distributed crypto functions and we talked about sensor networks. So let's talk about distributed quantum computation. Mm -hmm. um, right now, you could argue we are doing distributed quantum computation because when we access IBM's quantum computers, those quantum computers are in New York. They're not in Tokyo. So when we connect to them, we use a web browser or, or a, a JavaScript yes. and, or, sorry, not JavaScript, a Python yeah. script, yeah. and we can access the, the, the machines remotely over the Internet. Well, isn't that distributed quantum computing? Well, <laughs> we're not creating any entanglement between Tokyo and New York when we do well, that. Well, communication <laughs> is not quantum. That's, that's exactly. the Exactly. And if we had a quantum computer in Tokyo today, and we had one in, in Tokyo and, and the one in New York, 
and we wanted them to collaborate to solve a problem for yes. us together, they can't do that in a way that gets you the kind of speed up we want out of quantum computing unless we can create entanglement between the two of them. If you have, if you have a set of small quantum computers and they can't communicate quantumly, if they can only communicate classically, then you can't solve big problems fast. But also, this is what what I don't quite understand, um, Rod. Is okay. So, uh, I mean, I, I I know there are like several papers, maybe just like two or three papers on you know how do we write any quantum algorithm you have into like a distributed quantum computer. And and basically, um, what you need for that is just a way of doing distributed C knots, because you can do like local mm -hmm. operate like it's you know you, uh, universal computation just local operations and C knots. So yeah. the only kind of remote thing is 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 doing is doing distributed C-knots. Right, and if you can do that yeah. over the the quantum internet, so when we talk about creating entanglement, we're usually talking about, in the, these conversations, we're usually yeah. talking about creating what's called a bell pair between you and me, between mm -hmm. two, two places. That's two qubits that are entangled with each other. You can use one bell pair to do exactly what you just said, to execute a C-knot between the two machines. Mm -hmm. And you do that, um, you destroy the bell pair in the process. Yes. Which means that for every CNOT gate we want to execute, we have to create at least one bell pair. Um, so that's part of the job of, of the quantum internet. So you need that capability if you want to connect two small quantum computers together and mm -hmm. have them be as powerful as one larger quantum yes. computer. And so that's where we get this idea of, in order to do this, in order to execute some algorithm in a distributed fashion, we're going to need billions of bell pairs, billions of entanglement operations per mm -hmm. second. Yes. Well, you know, that's dependent on several things. Number one, it's dependent on the algorithm you want to do. Number two, it's dependent on the size of problem you're trying to solve with that yes. algorithm. And number three, it's it's dependent on how you're dealing with errors, how oh, you're yeah. dealing with right, error correction over the top of this. Because like, error correction is a whole new level, exactly. actually, but, and you have to place that on top of the distributed setting. So it's not exactly. just doing C knots, but like, how do we do? Exactly. Yeah. And so there are there are a small number of people who are starting to work on how we can deal with the, these kinds of distributed computations with the minimal set of resources. Um, Wait, don't some you people have a paper with Simon, like on like topological like error correction on, in the distributed setting? Am I misremembering the paper in the you and Simon? The, uh, we've done a bunch of work on distributed algorithms and how to execute those in by ganging together small numbers of quantum computers, but Simon hasn't been on any I, of I those I remember there was one papers. like on topological. Uh, Simon is a co-author with uh, with us on um, the uh, lattice surgery paper. Um, okay. Dominic Horseman is the first author on that. Okay, no, that's not the yeah. one I'm thinking of. And Simon is the first author on our um, Quantum Internet via Container Shipping <laughs> yeah. paper. When, you know, the, when Simon first told me about that idea, so the idea is you take a container ship in in port in San Francisco and That's you cool, put a bunch yeah. of qubits on the container ship and you entangle them with a bunch of qubits that are sitting on shore, then you take the ship and you move it from San Francisco to Tokyo and now you have entanglement between Tokyo Makes and sense. San Francisco. <laughs> When Simon first brought this up, I said, nah, you're crazy. You know, it's theoretically possible, but the numbers will never work out. And I got involved in the project, and, and we got the numbers to, to work out. It's, it's a uh, 
an interesting idea. The, uh, until this recent tremendous uh, success by the uh, the uh, team from China, I would have bet my house that that would be the first way we would create entanglement between Tokyo and San Francisco. Oh, really? Because. <laughs> Because getting all the way across the Pacific with any sort of optical signal is really hard. Right? I did not think that would be practical for satellites over those kinds of distances. And obviously, if you're trying to build actual repeaters mm -hmm. for these kinds of quantum internet stuff that I'm talking about, sure. we're a very long ways from, from something that can be put into a package that's the size of a... a a shoebox or even a desk mm -hmm. and that you could drop to the bottom of the ocean and expect that it would sit there and run properly for 15 or 20 years. Right. And we're still a very long ways from doing that. And so I thought this container shipping would be the way it would actually be done. But the satellite guys are making tremendous progress. They're doing amazing things. They've demonstrated entanglement over more than a thousand kilometers using um, signals from, from their low Earth orbit um, satellite. Now in order to get from there to doing it across how many kilometers is it between Tokyo and San Francisco? I don't know, 10,000? Less than that, um, 6,000? The um, Getting across those many thousands of kilometers is going to take multiple hops or a satellite that's high enough to see both, and that mm -hmm. means geosynchronous. Or you could have multiple satellites yeah. and have like satellite to satellite. Yeah, yeah, or you can do satellite to satellite, and all of those are hard. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And even a single geosync can't really see San Francisco and... and uh, Tokyo very well, so there would be some places it could cover and some places it couldn't. So satellites are a very, very hard problem, but mm -hmm. the work they've done, even with just one satellite, is really amazing. So the uh, going back to the applications of distributed quantum computing, my favorite example is blind computation. And the idea is that you have a small quantum computer and you create qubits and you send them across the quantum internet to the quantum mainframe that somebody else is uh, renting to you and you run computations on that quantum mainframe and the people who own the quantum mainframe learn, learn nothing about your input data or your output results or even the program that you're running, the algorithm that you're running on that. Um, they learn nothing except an upper bound on the size of the computation you're running. So that's incidentally what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Excellent. So since you asked. Yeah. Yeah. So Anne Broadbent and uh, Joe Fitzsimons and Ellen Kashefi came up with the original idea, and Stephanie Bars has done a, a experiment. demonstration, experiment uh, of this. Both blind the, and the verifiable uh, version of the blind computation. Right. I, the, I had been saying it was my favorite idea yeah. of the last 10 years. That's great. I heard yeah. it, and I said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw uh, Anne at a, uh, at a conference in uh, Tokyo just a few months ago, and she said, uh -huh. you know, the idea is now more than 10 years old. So, yes. so now <laughs> I have to right. say it's my favorite idea of the last 15 years instead of the last 10 years. Of the, uh, it's impressive stuff. Um, Simon's actually also done some work that, that's uh, related to blind computation. Okay, because I know he does like measurement, like maybe some measurement-based stuff. Yeah, so you go back and look at some of his early measurement-based uh, papers. The, you know, some some of the uh, some of the core ideas are lurking there in those papers too. But, but, but actually, Rod, um, like I, I think that's an update to what you were saying, like in your talk, that you know somehow. Uh, you know, blind quantum computation. That's the reason for us to need a quantum network because, mm -hmm. you know, for, for that you actually need to like either to send qubits like to the other party or you know um, be able to like remotely you know do these quantum measurements. But but actually, it's a uh, very recent development where they actually found uh, an algorithm where it's just classical, like the 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 client is purely classical. 
I haven't seen that. Who did that? Um, Sir Ermola uh, uh, Mahadev, I think. Um, there, there are a series of two papers, one on like blind, and one on uh, like verifiable as well. Because you know, uh, it's one thing to have blind, but but if you send the answer to me and I still don't trust you, <laughs> um, like like how do I ascertain whether or not your computation is correct or not? So so in Joe. Um, well, if there there are NP you know, problems, oh, then sort of by definition, I get back the answer. I can check whether or not it's right. And NP is fine, but like in general, if it's not if it's not an NP type of problem, like how do you do that? So so in the original kind of scheme, you know, you would have like things like traps. So so I hide from you where you know I had these traps. Um, and it's then, almost like the QKD stuff again, right? right? You're hiding in these things and you're waiting to see if somebody malicious no, exactly. does something so, to it. So, right? so if, if I see that you're, you're trying to cheat me, but you don't know where the traps are, you could like you know accidentally be modifying these traps. Right. And that's how I know. But but in these new schemes, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know enough detail about it to talk about it, but I just thought that's one sort of very recent development. I think only in the past year or something. I haven't seen that. Yeah. Um, guy named uh, Fuji, Fuji, F-U-J-I-I, and uh, Morimaya, uh, they, they've been working on the blind computation uh, in Japan. They've oh, been yes, working to, yes, to uh, they've been working a lot, yeah. reduce the numbers of qubits or the numbers of uh, entanglements you'll need across the uh, network. Yes. Um, I have not sat down and tried to combine what, they're, what they've done with, with what we've done, but mm-hmm. you know, that's another one of the, another item to put on the, yeah. uh, on the, uh, the research agenda. The, uh, yeah. The numbers that we came up with when we did some analysis of, of blind computation said that if mm-hmm. you want to use it to do fully fault-tolerant fully computation, fault tolerant. Okay. Um, you're including a, a, a strong error correction code, yes. and run Shor's algorithm from your small terminal to the to the big quantum mainframe, mm-hmm. it's going to take tremendous amount, uh, tremendous data rates through your quantum internet, you know, 10 to the 10 bell, bell pairs, pairs per second, second yeah. or something, in order to do this in a few weeks even, let alone in, in reasonable time. So that's, you know, it's once again another one of the kinds of things I've been doing a lot of in the last yes. 15 years. Somebody has an idea, and I go, that's a great idea. Let's see if it's practical. And the no. first the first answer is always, ooh, that's going to be harder than we thought, right? <laughs> no, no, but I, actually, we were talking about this earlier, that, you know, you, you said you don't like the big O notation because it hides all the constants and hides right. all the polynomial factors because, you know, that's really the difference between whether or not you can do this classically, oh, you can do this, like, practically or not. Yeah, so the... Yeah. Um, we were talking about that before the podcast started. So the big O notation, of course, is one of the most important theoretical advances of the last uh, century. But the, as an engineer, I worry because it hides the constants, like you're saying. So mm-hmm. when I got into quantum computing in 2003, there were still a bunch of people who, who were saying, oh, Schwarz algorithm is going to be this amazing thing because, mm-hmm. because it's potentially not quite exponential but sub-exponentially yeah. faster than, 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 than a classical algorithm but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be practical right? and so my work for my PhD thesis was was trying to figure out how long those computation times were going to be and the answers came up large the, uh, the amount of error correction you need is high and that was yeah. some work that I did with um, Thaddeus Ladd and Cody Jones uh, and uh, others, uh, the, uh, and I think ultimately some of that work that we were doing, when would that have been? 2007-ish? Um, those kinds of results, I think, gave people sort of a negative impression of the field for a little while. 
because they were going, gee, this quantum stuff's not actually going to be practical, which was never what we intended, right? You know, they, yes. What we intended was just, but it's important all to right, do. <laughs> here is this, uh, this algorithm that people think is going to be important. Let's see what it, what it looks like. What's it going to take to really build and deploy it? When the answer comes up big, then what you do is you turn around and go, okay, so that's not going to be practical. Let's look at other algorithms, or let's look at different problem sizes, or let's look at, at relaxing the constraints on fidelity. Um, there are many different things you can do. It doesn't. It's not a single answer that says quantum is not going to be practical. But Shor's algorithm itself remains a long way away, even 15 years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a problem. I think just in normal. Um like quantum algorithms community. I mean, mm -hmm. people are kind of obsessed with you know getting exponential speedups, <laughs> mm -hmm. or if not that, getting like quadratic type of speedups. Um, but but there's also a positive kind of side to that, because um, if, if you actually see having uh, an improvement in a constant factor, I mean, in like when I go to some of these tech conferences, you know, classical like technology, I mean that that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Right. So, 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 so maybe there's a positive side to that. That you know, if, if we think about you know not concentrating on the O notation, but even getting, you know, practical, you know, constant size speedups or just polynomial speedups, that that can actually have you know a big effect. Yeah. So, so that's. But we still have a lot of work to do in order to make the systems practical in that sense. Um, but you know, really, right now, <clears throat> you were asking early on uh, about the uh, what's what's changed <clears throat> in the. Uh, Community. Yeah, and since 2003. Well, you know, the big change has yeah. been in the last couple of years, yeah. all of a sudden, like you said, there are a whole bunch yeah. of people who are really excited because all of a sudden the machines are things we can get our hands on, at least virtually, yeah. if not physically. We can start to program program them in C. And you know, John Preskill really caught the zeitgeist with, with, his, with his term NISQ, or NISQ this noisy intermediate scale quantum machines, mm -hmm. that's the era we're now in. Mm -hmm. We have machines with tens of qubits and probably within the next few years, hundreds of qubits, and they're going to be still noisy. Can we figure out how to use those? There's this quantum zoo. You're familiar with the yes, quantum zoo. It's a website zoo. that's got a couple of hundred algorithms listed mm -hmm. in it for, for quantum computers. Almost none of those have had this kind of analysis that we've done for Shor's algorithm applied to them. How many qubits is it going to take? What's the fidelity that, that's needed? Yes. How fast do the systems have to be? And can we run them on these NISQ I mean, machines? But, but I guess, uh, at least for the complexity zoo, I can sort of understand why people haven't done that, that kind of analysis. Because Shor's algorithm, he has a very good motivation for why people want to do it. Right. But for most of the other algorithms on the complexity zoo list, they're, they're interesting mathematical problems, but they're like <laughs> okay, so, so yeah. broaden, broaden the definition of the problem then. So, so, so the problem is not just figuring out whether what the machines are mm -hmm. the need, but taking those algorithms that are in the zoo yes. and figuring out how to use them. So we call them algorithms, and they legitimately are algorithms, but an algorithm is not the same thing as an application. Exactly, exactly. So the, uh, we need to figure out how to take the, the algorithms that are in the zoo and figure out what problems they can help us solve that people actually care about. That, that, that sounds hard. But actually, I think more recently, I mean, what, what you were saying before about you know having these machines, that's really a good catalyst for people trying to figure out what to do with it. And, and that's somehow like a little bit similar also in the machine learning kind of community. I mean, mm -hmm. the theory's been there for a long time. <laughs> 
Um, but it's only when you know we started, you know, um, you know, having these, you know, big databases and being able to work with them. That's when people started, you know, they can actually play with these machines um, and you know find all kinds of heuristics to make it happen. Um, and maybe maybe that's something we can do with you know this NISC era like quantum computing and you know and people also work on this you know area called quantum machine learning and they try and figure out you know on these smaller uh, kinds of you know, quantum processors can we you know have some kind of quantum advantage like for that so 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 playing around is definitely a, a good idea. Oh yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I said in my PhD thesis, which was 2006, that. that we're not really going to know, in some sense, what the what these machines are capable of until we build one and put it in the hands of the equivalent of Linus Thorvalds for for, for quantum computing. Right. right? You know, the, you know, somebody who's going to take one of these things and hack together something that then sort of spreads like wildfire and takes over the community and and people join in and contribute their 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 own things and it will grow. But speaking about this kind of hands-on approach, so so you're involved in this IBM Q. Uh, like hub, mm -hmm. so, so um, and that allows you to have like is is it better like priority access to mm -hmm. um, so is it the the 20 qubit one that you can have access to now? We have to access to two of IBM's 22 cube 20 qubit systems that are uh, both in uh, New York. Um, IBM has created this Q network, so network meaning. Business network, not technical network, not Classical like the internet, network. right? Um, the, well, human network or business network, as opposed to internet. Or, um, and there are a number of hubs around the around the world. They're growing rapidly, mm -hmm. but the one at Ko is the first one that was really fully up and running, from, mm -hmm. from what I understand. And we have access to the IBM machines, and we have member companies who have come and joined our hub in Tokyo to actually have access to the machine. <coughs> and we have right now four member companies uh, to, to our, our hub, two of whom are in financial services and two of whom are chemical companies. And they know that, that they're not going to be running algorithms on the IBM machines in the next six months that will solve problems for them that they can't solve using classical systems today. But they also understand that quantum is coming and it's going to change the entire computational landscape. And it's not something you can just flip a switch on and start using overnight. Part of what you have to do is you have to build the internal expertise inside of your company. And so it's their first step in doing this, their, their first step toward learning how these machines work. Um, and what we have that, that other people don't have, besides the hub and the place where, where people come in the community, is access to IBM's current leading machines. Mm -hmm. um, that's the two 20 qubit machines with a richer topology than, than the ones that they make publicly available. And what are know, the fidelities? Like a fidelities, uh, I think the, fidel the numbers for the fidelities are publicly available. Um, okay. The uh, For single qubit operations, the error rates are in the 10 to the minus 3 range, and for, for the, for the uh, Two qubit operations. There's still several percent for a CNET okay. operation, um, and measurement operate uh, measurement operators are uh, still in the several percent range. <coughs> um, because of in part because of the more complex topology they've created on on, on the latest generation of chips, right. that makes doing the wiring on the chip surfaces a lot harder. And so they've right. been working hard to do that. But, but maybe that could also reduce like the number of gates that you need if like you get better topology. So I guess on the on the older machines, um, you know, there, there are any connections between between certain nodes, and you need many more 
gates just to make sure you can... Yeah, the connection topology is getting richer with the newer machines they're building. And IBM has a 50-qubit uh, a machine that's in the laboratory, but you know, there, there's nothing public about that machine yet. We don't know what the machine is like and, yeah. and when, when we will have access to it and things like that. But I'm looking forward to, to getting access to that machine uh, okay, at some point, too. Oh, fantastic. Uh, maybe you can like, find a way of like connecting the two, like 22-qubit one, then you get a 44-qubit one. Yeah. So besides the work on the chemistry and the uh, machine learning, which, which is one of the things that the financial people are very interested in, yes. the uh, our third big effort inside the hub is actually the one that I'm leading, and that's the, sort of the system software mm -hmm. group. And we're working at the moment on trying to figure out how to do a better job of compiling programs for the real world existing quantum machines. And I've got a couple of really good students okay. who are working on that. And, and and what are the big uh, What are the big problems? Kind of well, it turns out that when you're compiling a program for a quantum computer, you can only execute operations on specific pairs of qubits. They have to be actually physically connected in order for you to be able to do this. <laughs> and those connections are on the existing systems are roughly laid out in two dimensions on the chip. There are actually some that go diagonally, so, so it's a little bit more complicated than that. But roughly, it's two-dimensional. So it means that if you have two qubits that are at opposite corners of the layout and you need to execute a gate between them, you need to figure out how to, how to move the qubits around inside yes, the machine right. <laughs> in order to, to get them to the place where they can do this operation with each other. Um, and figuring out how to map the variables in your program to efficient locations on the chip and then move the qubits around efficiently and then deal with all of this in the face of the fact that different couplers and different qubits on the machine are of different fidelities, it's a computationally com uh, complex problem. I think it's actually an NP-complete problem in and of right. itself. Yes. And so 20 variables <laughs> and 20 qubits, we put this on the system, the compilation suddenly start, uh, starts to take an awful lot of time, and we're trying to figure out how, how to do that reasonably efficiently. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for, for sharing like with us <laughs> so much today, Rod. That was really interesting. Yeah. It's been my pleasure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you for listening to uh, this week's Mechanics podcast. Okay, thank you so much, Rod. Bye-bye. <laughs>